When is a community utterly broken? When is it in pieces? In the United States, we've had a horrific couple of weeks. For listeners and friends who are people of color, I know that you're going through it, not only because of the shootings in Buffalo, but also the anniversary of George Floyd's death this past week. A large aspect of my life and the history that I'm chronicling in these Peak SF podcasts is about grappling with fear, with rage, with feeling helpless and alone. It's seeing each other and coming together through community. One of the biggest lessons I learned in San Francisco was how to build community from the perspective of leadership but also, and perhaps more importantly, from the perspective of following, of stepping back and letting someone else take the lead. I also learned that because of my white privilege, there are times when I should be carrying more of the weight or more of the risk, and there are times to let go, to step back, and to follow a lead. Supremacy and patriarchy would have us believe that change comes from superheroes acting on their own through super supremacist powers. In reality, I've found the opposite to be true. The strongest, most sustainable change comes from many people working together over time. It takes education It takes many, many, many small steps and experiments, some that go off in a totally wrong direction. It takes a leadership that is willing to step back when necessary. We've heard a lot over the past couple of weeks about how changes are needed. Changes to laws, changes to attitudes, Changes to representation in Congress. Change is one word, but in this instance, it is a lot. It is overwhelming and it is necessary. I'm guessing that there are a lot of people out there of all colors feeling helpless, angry, frustrated, and wanting to do something. I'm here to remind you that this something can take many forms, and it might turn into many small somethings that happen over time. Building a strong habit is a practice that starts with small, achievable steps. My guess is we are all feeling these feelings today. In the coming weeks on the podcast, I'll be sharing different aspects of my journey with community in San Francisco. I say this not as an ad for the podcast. I say this because we need you and others to step up and into community so that we can all work together for large, structural, seemingly impossible for the U.S. change. I encourage you to think about what you have to offer in terms of resources. How can you sustainably engage in making change? What does that look like given the privilege that you do or do not have in life? 
I used to think that making change was me taking the biggest, riskiest action I could take. After all, this is the messaging we get from the patriarchy. In fact, it's even the message we get from tech and venture capitalist culture. Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, and the rest of them are all about that. Hello, spaceships. But what I've learned is that when it comes to building sustainable community, a stronger step to take is stepping back, reflecting on the part I can play, and finding a community effort that is already in flight. Please let this be your encouragement, your motivation to step forward, to seek community, and to get to work. This week's podcast was recorded a couple of weeks ago, right before Elon Musk decided to put down the shiny toy of Twitter. He was about to buy it and not completely unexpectedly decided otherwise. When it comes to building community, literally don't be that guy. And now, back to 2010. Welcome to the Make It A Pair podcast. I'm your host, Marlena Compton. Twitter has been back in the headlines recently as the shiny object of Elon Musk's affection. Twitter is one of the anchors, if not the anchor, of the San Francisco tech scene in the 2010s. While I plan to talk more about what it was to be an anchor in the scene and who is on my particular list of anchors, today we're talking about Twitter. Twitter was the creation of three dudes, Jack Dorsey, Ev Williams, and Biz Stone, all of whom rotated in and out of the CEO position. Despite all of Twitter's growth and ubiquity, the site has never been that solid on the business side, and at one point in time, it had a problem staying up and dealing with all the traffic. Anyone remember the Twitter fail whale? It was the joke circa 2012, and I know people who were brought in to help Twitter rewrite their software so it could handle all of the traffic. Whether we think of Twitter as a town square or a town toilet, the one thing it specializes in is the thing that every narcissist feeds off of, that every celebrity is seeking. It is attention. In its early days, celebrities even had a habit of just showing up unannounced at the Twitter offices. And it is true that Twitter has been an anchor of this particular cycle in tech, the social cycle. In fact, the Twitter offices in San Francisco are a physical anchor in the city. San Francisco's former mayor, rest in peace, he had a heart attack on the job. Ed Lee made a genius move when he persuaded Twitter to move into its current space on Market Street. The building not only houses the Twitter offices, but it also contains a market, a food court, 
and a coffee shop. Because there is a food court, there are plenty of places to sit and eat and hang out. And it's revitalized a part of the city that once seemed rather neglected. Just because we're talking about their office, I'm going to go ahead and mention that I did eat in their cafeteria thanks to friend and former work colleague Josh Silverman. The Twitter cafeteria is enormous and attached to a rooftop deck that is the envy of all San Francisco tech offices. Workers at Twitter don't just get a free lunch. They have many, many choices. But not only did I eat in their cafeteria, I have a lot of memories stemming from being in the physical space of the building. Memories like having lunch with my girlfriends as we watched a hot dance instructor teaching an amazing looking class at the fitness studio next door. Then there are all of the solo memories, being wowed by the beautifully restored Art Deco lobby, shopping at the bougie Twitter market, writing code and sipping coffee in the cafe, working on a conference talk outside on the patio, having dinner and drinks with friends at one of the restaurants in the complex, visiting friends who were living in a studio apartment in a brand spanking new building, obviously intended for Twitter employees. But I digress. This whole news cycle we've just seen with Elon Musk deciding to buy Twitter, going through all of the motions to purchase the company, buying up all the shares, then deciding, eh, maybe not. After all of the headlines is a classic cycle of narcissism. Does Elon Musk really want to focus on the day-to-day running of yet another tech company? Or does he just want his edit button so he can avoid more run-ins with the SEC over his tweets, which did happen in 2018 over tweets about taking Tesla private? What is it with this guy and taking these private Oh, I know. It's control. I honestly think having more control is initially what was at the root when he talked about buying the company. But then he realized that the story was viral and the world, all the world was his stage yet again. Attention, power, money. These are things that narcissists need. It's what they feed off of, and it's called narcissistic supply. Elon Musk feeds off of being on that world stage, picturing himself as a brash maverick. This brash maverick archetype is a currency in Silicon Valley. Check out our latest round of streaming series about tech anti-heroes, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Adam Neumann and we crashed. In the end, it boils down to a narcissist seeking their supply. The slow burn of these stories is that they can and do have successful products at times. I honestly think Jack Dorsey is no better or worse than Elon Musk. Tesla might have its problems as a company, 
They are infamous for their labor issues and for being an absolutely terrible place for women to work. However, the thing about narcissists and startups is that they always tend to have a following around them who believe in their charisma and are functional enough to get a business going. Or not, in the case of Theranos and WeWork. What's the difference? I don't think there is one. I think that all of these startups have a 50-50 chance of surviving. I don't even think it depends so much on the idea. If Theranos proved anything, it's that you can have a ridiculous idea that will never, ever work, and VCs will still throw money at you if they think there's a snowball's chance in hell of getting a return on their investment. So, Elon Musk buying Twitter. My thought was always that Twitter was yet another toy for him, and he would eventually tire of it. But maybe not. Maybe he would have undone all the work employees at Twitter have done to try and make it safer. What's ironic to me is that Jack Dorsey never seemed to think that much differently about free speech. After all, the brash maverick trope requires rules for founders to break. It requires a place that will let them do whatever they want to try and fix things. Whatever and to be able to say whatever they want about it. And they're usually very interested in and highly invested in this concept of free speech and taking that particular thing to extremes. At the top of this podcast, I talked about supremacy and superpowers. Venture capitalists rely on finding founders that fit this supremacist image of the brash maverick. Dropped out of school, but it has to be Stanford or Harvard. Tall and attractive male or female with a special productivity superpower called not sleeping. In the end, it's going to be Twitter's employees and the people using the app who keep the lights on. In the end, that's what we have. Through its long chain of CEOs, Twitter shows that these brash maverick leaders come and go. Even if the sale goes through and Musk sits at the helm for a few months, I doubt he will be leading Twitter in a year or two. As I talk about tech companies that anchored the tech world in the 2010s, one of the big things you're going to notice is the homogeneity of founders, leaders, and CEO. They are all alike. It's not a secret that I don't have that much respect for them. What I do respect is the people at these companies who have created community despite being surrounded by brash mavericks. Even if the CEO doesn't care, it's the employees that do care who set up rules on the social media platforms. It's employees who come to work every day that do what they can to try and make the large social media platforms safer and easier for underrepresented people of all colors and all genders. Don't get me started on the success that they're having because that's, man, that's an entirely different podcast. Then versus now. 
Because of the news, I ended up slightly changing the theme of this podcast episode, but I think it's where it needs to be. On this episode, I'm introducing a new segment called Then Versus Now. Although the heart of these podcasts are what the tech world in San Francisco is like in the booming 2010s, I'm now in such a different place that it seems worth giving you some context about that. Although I lived in San Francisco and worked in tech for much of the 2010s, I now live in Vermont and work in marketing and graphic design. As I tell you how it was on this podcast, I'm feeling a need to contrast that with where things are now. Regarding Twitter, the pandemic changed the company in some interesting ways. In 2020, Twitter was one of the first companies to take its entire company out of the office and pivot to work from home. And although the company is still headquartered, on Market Street, this is expected to change very soon, and it's expected that Twitter won't just be moving out of Market Street, it will be moving away from San Francisco. If that isn't a sign of the times, I don't know what is. As for my own personal usage of Twitter, it has changed a lot. In fact, I rarely use it for a mix of reasons, the main one being that content has changed. Sharing a line or two of text used to be enough, but now that mobile video works really well and is easy to share, text just isn't enough anymore. The irony is that Twitter acquired one of the first video platforms, Periscope, and eventually shut it down in a classic aqua-hire move. But it's not just about content. Twitter is no longer a place where I expect to discover something new, except for bad news making the rounds. And when that happens, I find that the app is suddenly too overwhelming to look at. The reason I'm still on Twitter at all is because there are people I enjoy hearing about, and this is the app they've chosen to stick with. In the end, I'm not sure where Twitter is going in a literal and figurative sense, But this story of Elon Musk deciding to buy it is just so typical. Obviously, in light of the past couple of weeks of news, I had to do some surgery on this podcast. And the theme that emerged was, do you want to be a brash maverick? Or do you want to be part of a community? Think about it and take a step. Bye for now.